Welcome to the ACL Podcast. I'm Michael Williams. I want to tell you a quick story. 15 years ago, I lived in Lower Manhattan, and I would walk to work every day to my office in Soho. I would go up Church Street, cross over Canal, continue up Green Street, and almost every day, I would run into Stephen Allen. At first, it was sort of a nod and a wave, and then eventually, we started stopping to chat. Our friendship, we had known each other a little bit, but our friendship sort of grew on that street corner, chatting every day. Uh, talking about the things that were coming into his showroom or new brands he had picked up for the shop or what he was doing with his woven shirts and and his his other collection. And I always admired Stephen's personal style. I loved all those wovens he made in the Garment Center. We did a collaboration around those shirts. And I, I always just admired his commitment to his uniform, his look, and his taste level. It always aligned with what was happening, but in a good way. It wasn't sort of chasing a trend. It was always uh, helping to, I think, provide inspiration to a lot of people that really were more committed to trend dressing. And it was always this sort of spin on classic things, and which I loved. And so I, I'd always followed him, was always a big fan of his. The other day I saw he posted something about the return of the reverse seam and, and how he's relaunching his brand direct to consumer. And I wanted to talk to him in sort of an impromptu way. We jumped on the phone and had this recorded this podcast and had this conversation. And I find the history of his brand and what he's seen through New York and and how he's built his business has been really interesting and inspiring. And so I hope you guys take some inspiration away from our conversation and find it uh, as, as interesting as I do. And I hope you like it. Where should we start? I, just like you got an affinity for my, but I definitely had an affinity for what you've been doing. And I feel like you're one of the true, um, really one of the true only um, valid uh, opinions on this. You know, I think that we, we kind of, I think we're sort of similar in that way in the sense that I was, I am in the fashion business, but yet I'm not really that interested in, in sort of fashion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm really interested in just making great stuff. And, you know, I think that um, for me, it's about the object and the beauty of the object. And it, and I don't really, I don't think I really even understand a lot of, you know, high fashion in terms mm-hmm. of just couture fashion and all that stuff. I really just want like something that feels good that essentially your friend is going to be like, that's really cool. Like, what what is that? Like, there's something about it. I don't quite know what it is, but you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that you, for not, you know, for not having an, like not having a real connection with fashion, fashion, I think you've done a really good job of uh, always sort of being in, you know, in the mix on what's happening, like in the apparel space. I think like you have good instincts and you have, you, you, you have good taste. And I think like it, even like if it's women's or men's or home, it's always like accessories. It, it was always there. Like I'd always, you know, the annex was like the one place I would come to that I would always walk away, like learning about something or being inspired by something that you wouldn't think of, you know, and it's just, there, there was always that excitement in, in the store. And I think 
then you were also doing, you know, like doing your shirts and it's like taking this really sort of basic, simple thing and, and like putting the perfect spin on it. Like to me, that was, you know, that's like, that's really hard to do. Right. So you have to understand it. I, I reject that you don't, you might not be into well, it. No, I, I think, I, yeah. I mean, when I say, I mean, you know, the kind of fashion I'm talking about, I'm talking yeah. about like fashion that's really kind of like, like I would say there's, you know, one, there's a lot of designers that sort of live to do uh, shows, you know, it's all about like doing a runway show or whatever. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that's, um, that's never been something that was, you know, we did, we did um, um, like not, we would have events, you know, like, like a two hour window and it mm -hmm. would be yeah, presentation. Yeah, presentation. Yeah, but we wouldn't really do a runway show mm -hmm. um, because it just didn't seem to make sense for the brand. And um, but in terms of other brands, that's how I started. So I think that it goes back to you know when I opened the store um, in '94. Uh, essentially, I knew a lot about accessories. Uh, my father's a designer; he's a jewelry designer, and I used to grow up going to trade shows and. Uh, whether it was handbags or jewelry or, or anything, it was always very comfortable. And then the clothing space, when I first opened, whenever people would write about the store, they would write about the accessories and they wouldn't really talk about the clothing. And it was really frustrating. And I was like, why aren't they ever talking about the clothing? And I wasn't making anything at the time, but I realized that the clothing was just me going to trade shows and the trade shows that existed at that time were not like man, woman, or, you know, like good kind of uh, yeah, well, well edited. Like the coterie show yeah. or you know uh designers i mean it was just like kind of big big brands you know vince theory whatever like those kinds of brands and um and it wasn't until i started finding like this niche of these littler brands like east village brands like daryl k you know we were the first store to ever carry daryl k and mm. you know, um lots of those designers and um and then we, I, I started selling them and then other stores would come in and kind of like look around and like oh that's a cool brand we should carry that and then all of a sudden you know across the street from me is some store carrying a brand that i carry and it was like frustrating because it was also dumb for the brand because it's like we're trying to spotlight these brands and the brands didn't really know you know they didn't know like oh oh i didn't realize i shouldn't sell to that store yeah. That, you know, they're across, you know, like whatever. And then one of the designers had asked me um, if I would represent them. It might have been Sophia Coppola because she was, um, she had a brand called Milk Fed um, at the time. And um, and I was selling, I think I was one of the only people, but she was getting a lot of, um, you know, buzz and um, the early brands uh, built by Wendy and Cake and Pixie. I don't know if you know these. Yeah, Becca. yeah. But it was just like, that was kind of what started the showroom. Mm -hmm. and the showroom, we kind of built this niche that no one wanted to touch, which was kind of like independent, new emerging. And I think that it was also economics because, you know, the big major showrooms were like, okay, what are you doing in sales? Like 500,000 a year, like no thing. You know, it's like <laughs> they want to take brands that are like 5 million and make them do 25 million or whatever, you know? Yeah. And so we built this niche and it wasn't the easiest thing to do. It was definitely a money loser in the beginning, but then it really, really picked up because it became an international business. And um, especially with Japan where all of our brands were, were 
really taking off there. And, um, and then when I started doing my own brand, it was, it was a really interesting to be able to go into a showroom as a designer, as a rep, having a showroom, uh-huh. and then also as an independent buyer. That was sort of like navigating those three lanes was always very interesting to me because um, one, we never had an issue with any brands ever that I was representing. We represented about 15 to 20 brands at any given time. There was never a brand that was like, hey, you're doing something really close to what we're doing, which was the obvious sort of thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. I think rep and you're doing your own stuff. It happens all the time. With, um, and then in the store, I never wanted to compromise the store. So I always felt like, you know, if there was, you know, two sweater brands and they were kind of similar, you know, and it was kind of like either one, I would certainly prefer the one I was representing. But if there was ever a situation where it wasn't and the, and the outside brand I felt was really much stronger, then I just wouldn't buy what I was repping, you mm-hmm. know, so it never felt like, oh, yeah, the Stephen Allen store and the Stephen Allen showroom, you know, it's one and the same. And it was always understood, you know, I made it clear to the brands in the beginning and then in terms of discovery, I think it was a combination of also people, you know, really meeting people that I felt like, you know what, this person has like a lot of characteristics that they could be successful as a, as a brand, you know, let alone, and then it was like, I always felt like when I looked at collections, it was, you know, did they have a point of view? You know, mm-hmm. is it clear if you were to hold up, you know, let's just say a new designer like Doan, you know, to me, Doan is a good example of a direct to consumer brand that definitely has a point of view. Um, and uh, you don't necessarily have to see the label to be like, Oh yeah, that's a don't, you know, dress yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know, I felt like our stuff was always like that. And the brands that I would try to represent to me always felt like they had an iconic uh, something about them. So the store opened first, what year did the store, what year did you? 94. And then the showroom, which was in the store, actually. The store was tiny. It was only 500 feet. Where was the first store? It wasn't on, like, It was on Wooster Street. Oh, okay. um, Between Broom and Spring. And uh, it was a space that was, my rent was 2,100 a month. And um, (laughs) there was bars on the window, graffiti all over the outside. Not only graffiti, but, like, um, yeah, poster. Like, it was just, like, and it wasn't an obvious like the window itself wasn't even at eye level. It was like a little bit higher up. You know, I had a big flag at the time and uh, people were always surprised when they would come in because if they read about the store, you know, be like, this is it? Like, this is your whole store? And um, and then, um, yeah, it was just like the upstairs area. So if the store was 500 feet, the upstairs area was like 100 feet, maybe. And um, I had to cut down all the racks to like three and a half feet. And then we had the collection. And then very quickly, it was like, okay, I need a, I need a real showroom somewhere. And then I basically... Oh, wait, what was Wooster Street like at that point? Like, what was Soho like in 94? Oh, like, it, was, it, was, it wasn't what it is now. It was definitely... I mean, Comme de Garçon was there on Wooster as well. It wasn't um, the East Village at that point, right? Like, no, it, was, it wasn't the East Village, but it was definitely like not like the tourist hotspot of New York. Yeah. Um, there was a few good stories, like, and Todd Oldham was on the street, Comme du Garçon. Um, there was a few, like West Broadway had one or two stores. Dean and DeLuca was down there. Mm-hmm. 
Dean and DeLuca was like the kind of the first thing in the neighborhood. It felt like I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Dean and DeLuca, and then I, and then I found a space that was like a live work space. So I was living on 19th Street in Park Avenue South, and I moved my apartment there, mm. and then I set up the showroom in the front, and um, it was like the grungiest, like the. the the entranceway kind of smelled like piss because it was like the one building on the street that like homeless would just because the door never really closed well and but <laughs> you know it was cool I built up I built the space in the back so you couldn't really tell it was an apartment in the back mm-hmm. and the kitchen was kind of behind the wall and but it, it drove me crazy because it was just like it was fax time and so like all night like faxes would be coming in <laughs> and, like, I got to see what's on what's the fax you know what is it it's an order, right? Or it's yeah. like, a, yeah, that's funny. And so then from where, so when did you move the store? Like how long was it there on Wooster? And then um, it was there for 94 to it, it, about 10 years, I would say. Mm. And then the next store that I had was, was an outlet store in the East Village. And it was just because one of my designers, you know, couldn't take, couldn't keep her, her store that mm. I was renting. And she's like, can you please take it over? I can't, you know, so then I was selling her stuff and then I was selling my stuff. The reason there was I always wanted the Wooster Street store to be totally fresh. And, you know, when you think about retail, it's always weird, sort of in between seasons, especially. Let's say you sell swim and then it's all of a sudden it's July and you start getting in sweaters and heavy coats mm-hmm. and you're supposed to sell fall when it's like summer. And like, what do you do with that other stuff? You just box it up. You know, because or you sell it on sale and it's like weird to have that because it was such a small store. So um, that was my idea was that that store would just be like keep Wooster fresh. and just mm. keep So you would stuff. move all move everything over there. Like once this once the summer stuff went on sale, like you would just move it over there. And so then you could you could turn Wooster over. Yeah. 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 Or, or just not put it in there, whatever. Yeah. But I wasn't like, I, I didn't come from, you know, I didn't really know. I knew the jewelry business sort of because I, um, I'd worked, you know, my parents store for a bit and I kind of knew that, but jewelry, you don't really ever worry about inventory so much. Cause it's just like, you keep it. For me, it was always about the experience. So as soon as I would sell through something, I'm like, can I get more, can I get more of these, you know? And, and it was like, okay, you know, how quickly can I get it? And then it was just like full again. So I could always have like, all the sizes and all the colors that I liked and stuff like that. And then at the end of the season, I'd be like, shit, I have a lot of inventory, you know, like what am I going to do with all this inventory? It was like the new stuff was coming in. Uh-huh. So I, eventually I got it, but um, uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a learning experience. So, and when did, so when did everything move? So what you opened the outlet and then in 2004, you ended up moving the Wooster street store yeah, but before that, so yeah, so the the showroom moved. The showroom moved, and well, it was around ninety seven that it started, and maybe I moved to the other space in ninety eight, mm-hmm. and then I started my own line, which was just men's, uh, around two thousand. Was it shirt? Just shirts? In the beginning, it was just shirts. Yeah, and the, the very first shirts that I did were just kind of like your solid button down shirt. Mm-hmm. But then instead of it, you know, how button down shirts always have like the same color thread. So the thread, that was it. The only difference was that the thread was, I was like, this will be really easy to do. Why doesn't anyone ever have like a contrast thread or anything? So we would do, you know, interesting colors and you know, mm-hmm. different threads. So that was the very first. And you were making everything in the garment center? Yeah. And that I didn't really, because I never studied design. So I didn't know how to drape or sketch or anything. 
So I would just go there and then there was all these jobbers, you know, there, which I was fascinated with because my grandmother used to be a seamstress and mm. like I would go to her house and there'd be all these buttons and stuff. And <laughs> so I figured, you know, the jobber might be able to tell me where I can make something, you know, because uh-huh. stuff. And so, you know, the jobber, I remember it being like, I'm not sure, but you know, you should ask the guy with the zippers. And then I go to the guy with the zippers and I go, yeah, I want to make these. I had this idea, you know, and then I found this factory. I called it the police pan. I think that was the next thing that I did. And I wanted to do this pant because I saw that the police pants had like a welt, like a, and it was just really cool. It was kind of like a very big coin pocket. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I liked about it was, so they were, they were making uniforms and the inside of the, um, the waistband had like a grip, like, like this really, I, I don't, I don't see it really anymore, anyway, but it was like cotton, but then it had like rubber. So uh-huh. if you touch your shirt in, it was like, it was, there was a name for it. I can't remember what it was, but it, it would just, like hold it there basically. Yeah. It would, hold, it would kind of yeah. hold it there. Yeah. And so what I tried to do was just find the best factories that I could find for every single category. So eventually I found this, like, this amazing blazer factory and, um, um, and then, you know, suits, uh, like the, the guy that ended up doing, I think Tom Brown suits in Long Island city. And mm. like, I would just like constantly find Rocco. that was Rocco, right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. but he didn't do much cause I didn't do a lot of suits, you know, mm-hmm. I just some stuff. And then, um, um, round, oh, around 2000, I thought like I need to separate men's and women's because the store is so small. It would be really great to find um, like a second floor men's space. You know, I had been traveling to Japan a lot. I, mm-hmm. I, so I did this partnership to yeah. open stores in Japan. And, um, and this company was like the biggest in high end. Uh, I mean, in the early eighties, they did like all the Italians, like Armani and Versace, I think, and all those kinds of, and then they switched to like, Dries and, and brands like that. And um, so I went to Japan. I had a few companies that wanted to do like partnerships there. And um, this was one. And they took me to their headquarters in Osaka. And it was like this building that was designed by Ando. Do you know Tendori yeah. Ando? No. He does all the cement. Like if you look at he's just like one of the most iconic um, architects in Japan. And he did one building on Kenmar Street. Uh, but it's not really that great of an example of his work. Oh, interesting. Um, it's all some poured cement uh, construction usually. And anyway, so it was this building and um, it was the Dries showroom space at one point. And so I did it, but it was really like, I wasn't really ready for it in terms of, and not that, I don't know if I was ready. It was, it was a really high-end space. Like everything around me was like, Comb was on this corner, Yoji was on this corner. You know, um, mm-hmm. and Demilemeister was on this corner, and, and it was just sort of like. And then there was me, and I didn't even make anything at the time, actually. So this might have been '96 or '97. I don't know. And um, so I did that with them for a while, and then that company went out of business, and it was taken over by Atochu. And um, but he was a really uh, interesting guy. And then I did another um, partnership with United Arrows in. That was in like 98 or 99. And then they still have Stephen Allen stores in Japan now. Wow. Um, 
there's like I think six or seven of them, and then they also carry Stephen Allen at United Arrows as well. United Arrows is just one of the best retailers just anywhere, and just the way they operate, everything they do, like the taste level, the merchandising, yeah. the way they run their business, it's like first totally first rate on everything. Well, they were always someone that I looked to in terms of like what I was like. It's funny because I was going to Japan and I was like, why doesn't something like this exist? Not just United Arrows, there's Beams, there's General Standard, there's all these great stores that are like multi-brand stores that also have their own brand in the US. And um, and then, you know, it's funny because years later, people go like, you know, you inspired me to open my store in Japan. I'd have like these Japanese people that would come because we would carry like dead stock Clarks and, you know, I mean, I imported Uggs like, before they were even in America, you know, from Australia. Mm -hmm. And we had like old Casio watches that I would import from Japan. It was just like this really random mix of stuff. Um, uh, Dead stock, all kinds of stuff I would buy on Orchard Street, I'd sell it. And um, so it was fun. And so so they're inspiring you, (laughs) you're inspiring them. It's like the circle of life, right? Like that's kind of like what happened with me. It's like, I went to Japan was inspired by all these like hyper-focused magazines about workwear and whatever. And was like, how come no one's like doing this in America? Right. And then, uh, yeah, it's, and it's funny the way like they're interpreting what we're doing and we're then being like Marvo and began and Popeye and all those guys. Yeah. 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 In fact, I did an article for, um, for Harper's Bazaar. I wrote it and I, I photographed it on shopping in Japan and, uh, Andrea Lynette was, uh, I think the head at the time and, um, it was really good. And, and I brought her back all these magazines and I was like, look at these. I think you'd appreciate it because she's in the magazine business. And, um, what was interesting is there were magazines that were, um, you could shop. So they, they had, product but you can also shop uh, uh-huh. the product. shop it then as opposed to like vogue where they have it in there and they're like oh yeah that'll be available in six months it's like well so um andrea is like you know we've been talking about doing something like this at um i don't know if it was Condé master um or uh, new house uh, or anyway it was one of those two and yeah. so like, would you mind like could you help us put together the first edition so we just did like products from my store and then I, again, went to Japan, did a story on Japanese shopping for them, which became the, the very first issue. And that became Lucky Magazine. Wow. And yeah. Lucky Magazine at the time was the most successful, I think it was the most successful women's magazine um, out there. Uh, you know, until it wasn't, but it was definitely yeah. had a good Yeah. Time. No, um, and I remember that. I, I remember those days, too, with Lucky and and. And women would like really just like tear the page and come into a store. It was like very, you know, it's like everything, the, the, you know, di- connection between the reader and, you know, commerce was so direct. Right. And it worked really well. And then that's like, you know, I think Lucky's just like a victim of like the way that, you know, digital and, and shopping and, and e-commerce like changed everything, you know, yeah. like that was like an early easy sort of like, vic- you know, an easy thing that sort of got killed by the internet in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. So, you, you know, it's the store, like the annex or so what's, when did you end up like basically taking over Tribeca then? I'm, I'm sort of fixated on that era. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what happened was 
trying to remember exactly the trajectory, but so I had Wooster Street. There was, oh, oh, I know what it was. This guy was smoking crack on the fourth floor in the building and it turned into a huge fire. And then when the fire department came, and this is not, this wasn't the first disaster. There was like disasters that happened there. Because, oh you know, do you know, Spring Street used to be a spring and um, Canal Street was a canal. So I didn't, know, I didn't know Spring Street was a spring. No, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's what I heard anyway. Yeah. And it's the lowest point in all of Manhattan, basically. And so um, wow. when it would rain really heavy, it would just flood. And so we had like, you know, I had a lot of inventory in the basement, just got totally wiped out. And then when there was this fire, they basically went every single floor and just like broke the windows and just like hosed, like massively hosed. So everything between the smoke damage, water damage, everything was just like a disaster. Wow. And then, so I had just like, I was like repairing that. And then, and then I had this showroom on Mercer Street and so I thought, like, I really need to figure out a way to consolidate. Um, oh, 9-11 oh, happened. That was, so 9-11 happened, and obviously very close to Tribeca. Tribeca real estate didn't, like, especially for commercial, mm -hmm. it would be, like, you're insane to open a store in Tribeca. You know, it just, <laughs> it was still, like, it still had, like, you could still smell 9-11, mm -hmm. you know, almost. And um, and so I thought, like, let me find out how much it would be to have a store, you know, there. And um, maybe what I could do is essentially close down the showroom in Soho and and then eventually close down Wooster Street and make that kind of the flagship. But I figured it would take, I don't know, a couple of years before there'd be enough traffic you know, in Tribeca. So the idea was that I would keep Soho and then I would just send everybody, oh, do you know our store? Kind of like when you go to Japan, you're like in Capital and they're like, oh, have you visited our other store? You know? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, it was like, so we and just- kept So no one was down in Tribeca at this point, basically. I mean, there was still like some nice apartments, but not like what's yeah, now. Yeah, what's yeah. But um, very quickly, like within- four to six months, that store was generating more on its own than Wooster, even though it was a much bigger store. So then I, um, I, I closed down Wooster. Wow. And, and then basically the basement of that store was the showroom. Mm -hmm. And it was also our offices. It was also the inventory. So it was a, it was a highly productive space. And the landlord, you know, gave me like two years at the same rent that I was paying for the showroom in Soho. So it was like, it wasn't really much, you know, it would, I guess it would be like opening on Lincoln instead of Abikini. If you have a store in Abikini, it's like, yeah, I yeah. think it's going to be good. You know, it's not far, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then, so that store became like, was that like the biggest, I mean, cause it was, you had the most space there. It's obviously like everything's consolidated there. That became like the, probably like the biggest performing store right to date. Yeah. Like it, yeah, it was, and it became, it was always our, because that was like my base, so I was always in it, you know? Yeah. And so I think that... Um, but why did you call it Annex? Like, why was that Annex and like other stores were just Stephen Allen stores? It was, you know, it, it wasn't. What happened was, do you, do you remember the Elizabeth Street Men's store? Yeah. 
So that store was actually, because that was a different concept. So there was Stephen Allen on, Woosh, on Franklin Street. And then when I opened up just my brand on Elizabeth Street, I had to come up with a way to differentiate. Oh, that, that was street. called Annex. So, so that was called Stephen Allen Annex, right? Yeah, okay. And then, um, but then at some point it was like, you know what, actually it should be flipped. That should just be Stephen Allen because that's only Stephen Allen. And then the Annex should represent kind of like all the brands. Yes, yeah, all the third-party brands, like the, the spe yeah. specialty store. So we kind of flipped it after that. So at one point you you were saying, like we, we chatted just before we started recording this, whatever, but you were saying you had eight stores at, at one point, um, and then you started like going in. I'm sort of fast-forwarding a little bit, but um, you, you really started then expanding in it. And what was the, like the thought process with like all of that expansion? So I had one, uh, so in New York, I had the men's store. I had the, um, well, no, actually the men's store also, I closed when I opened Tribeca. So everything was consolidated, but the men's store, oh, we didn't talk about that. So that was on Broom Street and that store was kind of like, do you remember early Jack Spade? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we were the doing little, that. The little, the little Jack Spade. On Green Street. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so before they ever opened, we had a store that sold like vintage electronics, like vintage radios and speakers and model airplanes. And it, it, essentially, it was kind of a low budget version of what they built, I would say. Uh -huh. But everything, you know, all these antique cases. And then it was just an aside. It was kind of so my mother was getting her hair cut um, in the East Village on Ninth Street, uh, this Japanese salon. And this woman, Crystal, was saying that she wanted to open up her own salon. And she's like, oh, talk to my son. Maybe you guys could do something. I'm like, mom, I have nothing to do with the salon. Like, that's not my, I can't. She's like, well, just meet with her. She's, she really does a great job cutting hair. And so I was like, okay, I'll meet with her. And then I, and I was thinking in the back of my mind, like, what about a barbershop? A barbershop could be kind of interesting, combining a barbershop and, uh, and a men's store. And so I asked her, I was like, what about it? She's like, oh yeah, I cut a lots of men's hair. I could do a barbershop. So I bought all these old, you know, like barbershop chairs. Uh -huh. And essentially half the store was, was the barbershop and half the store was the men's. And um, this is and like the pre precursor to Freeman's basically. Yeah, yeah, this is before, this is yeah. like in 99, I would say. So I forgot about that. So actually the men's before it moved, um, well, that was the men's store. Yeah, that was, so that was on Broom Street and we would send everybody there, but it was a men's store and barbershop. So we had a, a consistent traffic coming in. But then when I opened in Tribeca, I closed that. I closed. Yeah. So <laughs> this putting, I'm putting it all together now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, did that. So at one point you, so then you're, you're, we were saying like that you were at eight stores and you were in, then you wanted to just expand or started open started opening more stores like in other markets, Atlanta, LA. Yeah. So, so my manager in New York was really good. And, um, and he, you know, he went from uh, doing that. And then he was also uh, helping me manage the showroom at one point and he wanted to move to LA. And uh, he's like, yeah, I want to move to LA, but would you ever consider opening stores in LA? You know? And I was like, yeah, that would be my next market after mm -hmm. New York. And then I thought, but he was already kind of like a mid to high level person for me and my company. So I knew I couldn't just pay him to manage a store in LA because it would just like, but 
if he could oversee like three or four stores, then it, it would kind of make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so we opened uh, on Abikini, I opened on Robertson, and I opened on um, Hillhurst in Los Feliz. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he oversaw those stores. Um, and, and, you're, and you're thinking like, you know, we're, we already like have our formula down, like we're buying from these brands, we just like make the buy bigger. It's like the same aesthetic, like same vibe in all the stores, right? It's so it's not like every store is being bought individually, right? And it's just yeah, like, yes, you know, no. yeah, there was a, there was a stable brands, but then each store had had it like, I feel like, for example, our store on Abikini, to me, like there was almost no black in that store, for example, mm-hmm. and um, and you know there was like cactuses on the outside. Obviously, it was more uh, heavier in like t-shirts and short sleeve shirts. You know, mm-hmm. so it was a, it was a slightly different mix. The type of women's clothes would be different than let's say Chicago, you mm-hmm. know, which was different than Greenwich or Westport, or mm-hmm. you know. But um, but what happened was, yeah, it just very quickly going from eight stores to 23 without really being able to check in. Like it was just like, I was just flying and I couldn't be there enough. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say that the mistake, uh, I mean, there's lots of mistakes, but one of the mistakes I think was that, um, you know, I assumed that if it was good for a lot of retail that I thought were sort of like-minded retail, that mm-hmm. it would be good. And that wasn't necessarily the case. Really, the formula that, that worked for us with LA and San Francisco and Portland, which were all you know good markets for us, for example, where we already knew we were shipping a lot to those states. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like an obvious thing. Whereas just because a, a real estate agent is like, oh yeah, I mean, the average income is this. And you know, right now we're building this new development near here, which is, you know, it's just kind of like, okay, great. But you know, that's not necessarily the magic formula. I, I feel like in a, in a way, right. It's like, they need you more than you need them. Right. Like they need you to come in and validate like whatever retail thing they're building out. Right. So then they could get Lululemon in there or whoever, right. Whatever big like corporate tenant can come in and pay like, you know, maximum rent for their, you know, your thing. And then, you know, maybe the taste level of the consumer at that point, like isn't sort of hasn't gotten to you or is different than, you know, a New York or LA person well, that's why you know and, and because of that I, I think that's why i was sort of lured to a lot of these places um because we were able to leverage that so we, we had you know at the time really good deals i think for a lot of these spaces you know like for example when i went into newport beach i was the first brand uh, to go into the center i knew the developer mm-hmm. uh, well and he said well what would make sense to you um, so we crafted a deal that to me made a lot of sense, but, and I, I, I still, you know, believe in that center and I think it's doing really well now. Um, it was definitely difficult early on because um, we were, you know, and then eventually they got lots of, you know, we, we brought them Claire V and then um, Warby opened and Nobu opened and, you know, uh, it, it, now it's kind of taken off quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. not, um, but I still think it's a certain type like I think that we will would do oh you know certainly we would do better in Silver Lake, Los Feliz area than we're going to do in Newport Beach because we're mm-hmm. just not real. Was it was that store in the Lido, 
was it in Lido that Lido yeah. village? Yeah. Which I, yeah, I heard the other day that it's just doing really, really well there. Yeah. And, you know, Abikini is still, still like turning over. It's like one of the few retail streets in LA that hasn't sort of like just boom and bust, right? Like it has turned over a lot of things and it did get really expensive, but it's still, it's like one of the few places that you'd want to kind of go and walk around in LA, you know, and I think it's always going to have that where like third street or Robertson, like a lot of those like sort of come and go. And that's like manufactured, you know, the, the commercial real estate people are sort of manufacturing the hype around those places to some degree. Yeah. That was a hard one to give up because I mean, we had like, I don't know if you remember in that store, it was the only store on Abikini that sort of jutted out. Yeah. So when you out the window you just saw the entire street um, yeah yeah that's that's it was on the corner it was a key that yeah. was a great space yeah it, we were, it was a very expensive platform for us at the time um and um having all the stores you know at this point you know not not the stores when we had the eight when we had the eight it was fine when we got to the you know towards the 23 stores it was just difficult because it takes it takes a while like in retail if you have a store you might generate 10%, you know, would be sort of like the profit in the store. Mm -hmm. And so imagine if you have, you know, three stores, they're all generating 10%, then you open your fourth store and it's losing, you know, a lot. And then it costs you so much money to build it. So um, it can really, it, so it, that was a difficult thing. It was also, we were constantly, we had the showroom business going and the showroom business had its own, its own cycle, cash flow wise. So the showroom you represent brand, you remember, I'm sure, but you represent brands and you might receive a commission 10 months later, mm -hmm. right? So you have to still pay the rent, pay the salaries, all that stuff. Um, so, and it was one business really. So one thing was funding the other, which is funding the other. And, and then from wholesale, because we were wholesaling for a while as well, that was kind of like a wild card to a certain extent because you could all of a sudden get a new retailer and then you know here's a here's a really big order and then you have to finance that order and then you need funds to do that so yeah um so we're, we're navigating all those things so now i mean you now you basically have no stores and you have your e-commerce yeah. and and you still have your brand and you you must feel like does it feel back like does it feel like going back to the roots of like where you were when you started in a way where it's like kind of only have to focus on this one thing. Yeah, it, it does. It feels like like Stephen Allen light, but at the same time, I'm very like I'm constantly thinking about brick and mortar retail, especially uh -huh. because the the everything has changed. So the 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 factors now, if you want to open up a store today, as opposed to let's say three years ago, now you can you can negotiate like tremendous deals with landlords mm -hmm. and they're happy to do it because it's like, there's so many empty spaces. Mm -hmm. and, um, so you're going to open a new store? Well, no, I mean, we don't have any plans. There's no immediate plans for a store, but I, but I would like to. Um, but I, I feel like before I open the store, I just want to really build out the product categories. So I feel like if I open a store, you know, like we're covered, like we, we know which factory is doing this. We know that they can, um, you know, grow with us and, and, and we can leverage that and so forth because the worst thing would be to open the store. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, and now so many people, so many brands are having a problem, you know, getting inventory. Um, yeah. I mean, we're, 
we're in a lucky position for that because pretty much everything is made in New York. Um, and so what happened was um, essentially after we shut down the stores, it was just extremely like uh, there, was, there was, you know, I, I was like running on all cylinders and the factories that I used in the beginning that were some of my favorite factories that I had to stop using, you know, I went back to because the minimums were smaller, the quality was amazing. And, um, and, you know, essentially they were, they were so excited. Um, and the reason why I was able to do it was because I didn't have to wholesale it. So, you know, a factory might cost me twice as much here as, as, you know, making it overseas, but, uh, well, the shirts, we almost, we almost always made them here. Um, but there were some factories um, uh, that we did certain things overseas. But now everything, even sweaters, um, wow, like cool. our, our cashmere beanies are made in New York. Um, and, um, you know, we've sold thousands of those over the years. And, um, and now the, the wool is this washable wool. Um, so there's a, there's a nice story. For me, it was always about yeah. the story. And uh, whether it was something I was making or a third-party brand, um, and um, being able to introduce people to brands, you know, mm -hmm. whether like Engineer Garments or Rachel Comey or like anyone that I thought was really great um, that uh, people hadn't heard of at the time, you know. And what do you, see, when you look at like the landscape now, if that's e-commerce, uh, physical retail, like specialty stores that remain, like the way the media is, like just concerning sort of the menswear world in which we both sort of like to exist. Um, what do you think about what's out there now and what you see? It's not a pointed question. I'm just curious, like, does it feel inspiring again or does it feel flat? Um, it feels like people are, are, I mean, there's, I mean, there's both, some of it's flat, some of it's inspiring. Um, I think that, you know, like before I closed the stores to me, I, I tried to like make it as interesting as possible. You know, like we, we had pottery in our stores and we had like random stuff, you know, mm -hmm. um, which now today is, is not so crazy, but I think the people that keep introducing things that, that are really into what they're doing to me, it comes across, you know, if you really love read, but if it's just like a store um, and I think that depending on what it is, you know, I think that there's, there's independent retailers. I mean, you covered it in your list. Um, certainly, um, you yeah. highlighted um, retailers and brands and so forth. Yeah. Um, and um, it, it's an interesting time. And it's like everything, everything is visible. Like every brand is sort of out there. Their discovery is sort of problematic at this point because of the internet. And so it's hard to sort of walk into someplace and be surprised in a way. And I feel like we've all like seen a lot of stuff and things have come for full circle with inspiration from Japan or Sweden or wherever, you know, it's like you now would think we're like a little bit hardened at this point to like walk into a space and it's harder to be sort of impressed by the weirdness or the, the interesting mix or, you know, it's hard but to it's find also people, Even besides the product, I think it's, to get really good people that are that are passionate about what they're selling, they're knowledgeable in retail today is hard, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that was one of the things that people always like shopping in the stores is you never, I mean, I made it clear with everybody. I was like, do not try to sell someone something like, 
talk about it if you're excited about it you know know about it like learn all this stuff but i never wanted people to come in the store and feel like oh shit why did i buy this you know like yeah. somebody's going to the store and like you just the salesperson is just like oh yeah it looks great on you yeah i tried this I, yeah can i can i put that on the counter for you like whatever and you're just like uh yeah okay and then all of a sudden it's like i hate that store <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know um, I never wanted that to happen. So, so it was always about building, you know, word of mouth and we were never, you know, um, and we had someone doing social, but it was not, it wasn't certainly at the level that a lot of companies are now. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I feel like now, now it's like you walk around and you see some weird lineup of people and you wonder like how they all learned about this thing and, why they're what it is they're lining up for to buy or you know it's like that's like the stuff i see where i'm like i just you know part of me just doesn't understand this universe uh and part of me doesn't want to you know part of me is like afraid i just couldn't imagine lining up to like buy something yeah yeah. that seems well you know it's funny i don't know if i ever told you this but but my previous business so so i worked for my parents and then i and then for a few years i started buying and selling collectible watches like mm-hmm. Casios and swatches and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that's actually how I opened my first store. I, I saved money from that business to open the first store. Wow. And that business was very much like the kids waiting in line at Supreme and, and places like that. Um, we, I would go and buy these collectibles and then resell them, you know, to different dealers. And I was traveling to Switzerland and Japan all the time, like on a monthly basis. And, um, and then I would buy stuff there and bring it back here. It's wild. Yeah. I wanted to ask you too about, and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, it's like you've been through the sort of like hills and valleys of the business, right? It's like the, the like peak times and then the lean times. Right. And, you know, I'm curious, like your take on the, like the entire world sort of saga and like what happened with Scott Sternberg and, and that brand. I mean, it's not like a, again, this isn't like pointed. I'm just like more curious of like, how did this happen? Do you think like, what's your perspective on it? You know, it's sort of crazy. Um, I mean, I know Scott cause he had come to me to rep him like early, early on, mm-hmm. uh, but I just thought there would be some crossover, you know, but I always thought he had a great point of view and, and had a really good, um, he's like a market. He's a great marketer, you know, like, um, and, uh, I was shocked when I read it, certainly. Um, and, uh, I was really at the same time, I was also really impressed when I read the New York times article, which was like a, it was like a full page mm-hmm. advertisement for entire world. Basically. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, like this is amazing press. Like he must be just like, like, printing it you know like <laughs> um but uh but do you also think like yeah the clothing business is terrible like it's a brutal business well it's just it's a tricky business because um you you know you could be let's just say at at three million dollars and you're not really making any money you're losing money but if you get to five million dollars you're profitable you're actually making money Mm-hmm. And you get to $10 million, you're losing quite a bit of money. And so it's like, well, how's that possible? The, the economy of scale, you should be, you should be constantly making more and more money because you're getting bigger. But I think that what happens is um, you, you're at $5 million and you're working out of a, an office like this and there's six people, $10 million. Okay. Now you're hired a head of sales. 
you, you've got now a much bigger showroom that you've got to move into. Um, or, you know, what kind of, what kind of, um, you know, healthcare do you have? You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, you've got to upgrade that because you need to have like a certain level of that. And, you know, and there's a lot more positions, but that's fine because when you're 10 million, you're going to need these people because they're going to help you get to a 15 million where then you'll be profitable. You know, so it's like navigating these, these yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, cycles is tricky. So do you think it's really hard to be, you know, sort of what I was, my question in, in when I wrote about it and look like, what do I know? I'm just like a casual observer here. Um, but my, my thought was, why don't more people just try to stay at $5 million, right? Where they can be profitable and a, and a manageable size. I mean, is it, you know, is it, is it also just really hard to be in that position because it's like you're running really lean and sort of you are making money, but like, it's, it's all pretty thin. Um, I think some of it has to do with like, who's, who's behind it. Is it, is it, um, is it just that person or do they have investors behind them? What are the expectations of the investors and are the investors basically, I mean, there's a lot of investors, a lot of companies where they're like, I don't care about if you're profitable, just keep getting bigger for a while. I mean, obviously eventually they want it to be profitable, but in so many examples, um, of many companies, you know, that are like, that are, some of them are public now that have lost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, every single round that they do is like double, triple, whatever the previous round was mm-hmm. because top line sales are growing. And, mm-hmm. um, um, so it's very difficult. I, certainly it was difficult for me to, you know, we grew quite a bit. I, I mean, we were doing about $35 million when basically I had to shut down all the stores, which was the most sales every year it went up, wow. but we were the most profitable when we were like half that. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, so, um, that's yeah. interesting. What, so what, what do you see as like the reverse scene? You brought the reverse scene back, which is like my favorite Stephen Allen shirt. Yeah. Just have happy to see. Did you ever see that article, the New York magazine article? Uh, it was an article called the shirt that ate Manhattan. Oh and yeah. I remember that. Yeah. It was, that was really like the article that, that, that was like, for me, that was the equivalent of like that entire world. Um, New York times thing. Cause it was just like, I was just like, I had my one little shop on Elizabeth street, New York magazine comes out with this article and it's like, what? And we were selling a lot, you know? Um, but, but certainly it was, it, it, it it amplified it quite yeah, a bit. Yeah. I mean, that's the, it's interesting, like what can move the needle now, you know, it's like that, that traditional PR thing that really likes, you know, will generate sales and what now like does that to the same degree, it's kind of, you know, that, that target has moved a little bit and the world's like pretty different in that way. Like it's hard to find the people that can really like, if it's a publication or an influencer or whatever it is like that, just like sells stuff it's pretty wild like it's harder a lot harder to see that sort of playing field at this point it feels like um but so what do you think is the future like what are you going to do going forward for the, with so, the brand? um so now i'm just trying to trying to launch more stuff all the time and again not launch it like this is my fall collection you know mm-hmm. sort of out of that i never liked that anyway and i, I was sort of forced in that hole because of doing wholesale Mm -hmm. and i think not having to do wholesale or doing select wholesale like like we did a collaboration with claire you know Mm -hmm. um 
when we did like our men's shirts for women. But, you know, it wasn't really like a wholesale order. Like we, we sent them product, you know, to sell what you can, you know, kind of thing, as opposed to like having to go and produce, you know, and then if you're late, or whatever, you know, it's just, I don't know. I think that, uh, so continue to do that, continue to build that brand, continue to bring on more brands on the, sh- on the site. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're doing a lot of drop shipping. Um, so it's, it's very inventory light. And um, now we're in a good position. I mean, the company's profitable and it's great. It's small. It's very small, but. Um, Are you happy? I'm happy seeing it grow and that there's like, yeah, I get happier every time, but it's just like, it's still not a size that it's like, you know. Because <laughs> I think that physical stores also help, they also help online too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. But, uh, yeah, so I'm, but I think we're, we're now like, I don't know, it just feels like we're, we're on the right trajectory, you know? Um, I, to me, it feels like a really nice reset for you where it's like you can, even though there aren't physical stores, um, you know, you have the, you're not wholesaling things. Like you have the flexibility to work with the factories you like. It's, it's, um, it's all sort of self-contained in one place. Like to me, it feels like, all right, this is like a really, you sort of like got rid of all the distractions and all the issues and like all the things that were maybe like dragging the company down or the brand down to some degree. And then now you can just focus on like doing, you know, you have more time to do what you want to do. You, you can, you know, it's like you have unlimited space on the internet to like bring in whatever you want, you know, if you can make it work. So to me, like, you know, I, I, I feel like this is a really good reset for you just like to go forward with um, and then build from here. And then, you know, you can sort of plug in a store here or there, you know, however you feel like it. And it'll yeah. still, it's still like, yeah, to me, it's like very. Fast. We could do a store as a, you know, we'll do a six totally. month, see how it goes. And yeah, totally. I mean, I just, I, I've always like loved the, your, the way you've merchandised things, like your perspective on brands. Like I, there's just, for me, it's like always felt very like interesting. And there's like been a, a lot of alignment in terms of like my, my taste level. And I think like what your eye. And so, you know, I'm, I'm definitely rooting for Stephen Allen and, and for you and the, and the company. And, um, you know, I think like, if anything, like the pandemic will probably like, you know, to your point, it's like help with retail, like help bring interesting things back. And um, this is like a good reset for all of us in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, you just look at the restaurant industry and how packed, you know, like restaurants that are, they're innovative, that are good are like doing the best business they've ever done. Yeah. People want to go out. They want to just like meet people. They want to like, I'll meet you, you know, meet you at Stephen Allen, see you there, you know, let's have brunch. Go, go there, whatever. That kind of thing is just like, it's missed, I think. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your time talking to me. Yeah, this is great. I'm so glad we connected. It's been, uh, it's been good, good catching up with you, man. Good to see you.